0: We've been enjoying following the righteous life of David the last few weeks. Last week we looked at God's declaration to David of the Davidic covenant. God promised that his loving kindness would never depart from David's house. God would build David a house and God's loving kindness would not depart from that house. David's house, David's seed would actually rule forever in Israel. And that promise, as we saw, points to David's later descendant, Jesus, the anointed one the great seed of David. And David was a truly remarkable king, a righteous man, full of faith, a man after God's own heart, blessed by God in so many ways. And it is because of this characteristic goodness in David that we find ourselves taken aback when, it, when we arrive at 2 Samuel 11 and 12, where we see the account of David's great sin. That's the subject of our lesson today, David disobeys God. This account is shocking, and it's a testament to the truthfulness of the Bible. David is presented to us as he was, not as the Israelites or even we might like him to be. But what's shocking in this account is not just how far David falls into sin, what's also shocking is God's response to David's sin. We're going to see today both the great horror of sin and the great mercy of God. Here's our outline. We're going to look first at the sins that David commits. We'll then look at God's reaction to David's sin. And we'll finish by looking at the aftermath of both David's and God's actions. Just a note, I'm taking a little bit different of an approach than your workbooks do, I would advise you to use the workbook as a supplement to today's lesson because it goes in a little bit different direction than what I'm going to do today. I think it will be helpful if you go through that afterwards or even if you've gone through it already. So just know that if you're, if you're following along the workbook and you say, this doesn't seem to line up with what he's saying, just know that that's the case. We have a lot to talk about today. This is an extremely instructive section of scripture. I can't even cover everything that's useful and helpful here, but I will try to cover most of it and edify you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. It's a sobering word, but in a in a strange way, it's also a great comforting and a, and a joyful word. Lord, I pray that you would instruct us now, that you would open my mouth to be able to explain clearly and spirit, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who listen so that they be changed, to repent of sin and to joyfully follow you in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the Pew Bible, that's page 327. We've now standardized our Pew Bible, so you can all turn to the same page. Page 327, that's where we're going to be starting. We were previously in 2 Samuel 7. Just to fill in the gap here, after God gave his promise to David, it was back to fighting. Chapters 8 to 10 are mostly about the wars that David had to continually fight in defending against and in subduing Israel's neighbors. You can see why Solomon said, as we discussed last week, that war prevented David from building the temple of God. His kingdom is continually beset by war with short periods of rest. In fact, as 2 Samuel 11 begins, David is in the middle of a war. He's in in a war with Ammon. Israel's neighbor to the east. Let's now read verses 1 to 5 in chapter 11, and we see what David falls into. Follow along with me. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Jerabba. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness she returned to her house the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said I am pregnant Okay we're going to stop there and make a number of observations The author presents to us a noteworthy contrast in verse 1 What is the contrast right now he doesn't he doesn't tell us explicitly whether that's right or wrong he's just letting us know this is the time of year when kings go out to campaign it's harder to campaign in the winter months usually they didn't fight then but at the beginning of the year at springtime for the israelites that's when you go out to fight but david stays in jerusalem why does david stay in jerusalem we don't know we're not told at the beginning of verse two though before david does anything where is david Before he goes on the roof, he's in his bed. He gets up from his bed, and then he decides to go on a walk on the roof of his palace. Now, that's not too abnormal. In the Bible, we see people often go to, the roofs, to their roofs for an activity, even prayer and worship. So uh, David going on the roof of his palace is not too strange. What time of day does David decide to do this? The evening, the word literally refers to dusk. So this is after the sun has gone down, but there's probably still a little bit of light. On his walk, on the roof of his palace, David happens to see a woman bathing. Now, how was David able to see this? Well, Israelite homes at this time were often constructed around a courtyard. I've actually given you a a picture a, uh, picture of what one of those homes might have looked like. You had several rooms completely surrounding an open space on the ground floor of the home. This is probably where Bathsheba was. Though we don't know too much about the bathing practices of the ancient Israelites, it's likely that they bathed in these small enclosed courtyards. David, from the roof of his house, is able to see into what would otherwise have been an enclosed and private space. What is David's reaction to seeing her? What does he notice? She is very beautiful in appearance. What is the next thing that David does? He tries to figure out who she is. He asks someone who the woman is. What's David's third action? He sends messengers to bring her to him, and then his fourth action is to lie with her. Now the second part of verse 4, which refers to her purification from clean uncleanness, can be translated two different ways. Either it means that before David and Bathsheba lied together, she had just finished purifying herself from her uncleanness. This is referring to the uncleanness of menstruation. Or this could refer to that she had not finished that process yet until after the two had lied together. Can be translated either way. But this detail about the purification of her womanly uncleanness, what does that tell us about the resulting pregnancy? It is clearly David's child. There's no way that can be Uriah's child. It is clearly David's. After this adulterous episode, Bathsheba returns home, but when she notices that she is pregnant, she sends word to David. Why might it be a big deal for Bathsheba to become pregnant while her husband is away? everyone will know that she's committed adultery. Something has happened to her to make her pregnant. Her husband hasn't been around for a while. She's probably committed adultery. This is a very dangerous situation for her because, as you mentioned, Danny, what is the penalty for adultery? It's death. You're to be killed. Both participants, if they are known, are to be killed. All right, let's ask some interpretive questions here. Was David wrong not to go out with his army? Do you think, Danny I think so. I would answer yes as well, not specifically because kings always have to go out to fight in the spring, but because he did not have a good reason to stay behind in Jerusalem. The author clearly makes a point of mentioning the idleness of David. only not only is he not going out with the army, but we're told that when he's in Jerusalem he has to get up from his bed before he does anything. He's apparently not doing anything in Jerusalem. He's just lying around. If David did have something pressing to take care of in Jerusalem, we could excuse his not being with the army, but that does not appear to be the case. Furthermore, at the end of chapter 12, Joab, David's commander, warns David that if David does not join the army soon, Joab will get the honor for conquering the city, and the city will be named after Joab. And David marches straight away to join the army. It's like David knew that that's what he was supposed to be doing. Joab knew the same thing. So this detail supports that David was not supposed to be in Jerusalem because he had nothing to do there. Now the Bible does not often talk about the relationship between idleness and other sin. Laziness is often described in the Bible as a That's definitely a bad thing because it brings hardship upon the people who are lazy. They don't provide well enough for themselves. They're not willing to work, and they suffer. But the only specific connection that I could find between idleness and other sin is mentioned by Paul in 1 Timothy 5, verses 13 to 15. In these verses, he's talking about why young widows should not be put on a list of specially supported widows of the church. Why? Well, let me actually read the verses. Paul says... At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. That's some... um, very informative words from Paul. He was saying that being put on this list would cause these women to be idle, and not only that, that idleness would lead them into further sin. The remedy was for them to get involved in meaningful tasks. And he suggested they get married, they have children, they keep house, and that they support themselves. And, they, and that way they will give the enemy no opportunity for reproach. So we do see, at least in this one small area, the Bible talk about the danger of idleness. Certainly, we've heard many proverbs from outside the Bible, from various teachers, or just handed down to us from previous generations, about the danger of idleness. You've probably heard the phrase, idle hands are the workshop of the devil. Standing waters gather filth. The bed of sloth often proves the bed of lust. Experientially, many Christians have found idleness to be quite dangerous. And the author makes a point to show us that David, David's idleness was a problem. It was his first mistake. Another question that we should ask, did Bathsheba ensnare David on purpose? Did Bathsheba ensnare David on purpose? What do you think? We don't know. I mean, we can build an argument that she did. She knew what she was doing, apparently living close to the palace. she, She should have known that David might see her from the palace's upper stories. She does not choose to bathe inside and She didn't choose to bathe when it was completely dark. She went out there when it was still light. She should have known better. She goes when summoned by David, even at night, when a meeting at that time should have seemed suspicious. She does not cry out, as the law says, when a woman is, or when a a law says that innocent woman ought to do if she's being raped. And afterwards, she makes no attempt to expose David's actions. So Bathsheba, she was doing this on purpose. On the other hand, you can build a case that she's innocent, or at least that she was being led along by David and had not ensnared him on purpose. She chose to bathe in her courtyard because that was the best place to bathe. As doing so normally accorded one with privacy, she never considered that King David might seek to view her. She went unwittingly when summoned by David, or simply taken against her will, and then seduced by David. I mean, The verb there is he took her. She was probably also liable to trust David, or even to fear David. He was the king, after all. He was known for righteousness. Surely David knew what he was doing. Surely she could trust David. Surely David wouldn't lead her down the path of evil. Surely David could protect her from any bad situation. So you can make a case that she's not to blame. Ultimately, however, it doesn't matter. It's not the text's focus. The text is not directing us to Bathsheba's motivations, but only on David's. What matters is how David reacts to Bathsheba. That's the point the text wants to focus us on. And how does David react? He does not react like faithful Joseph did. And in that situation, the woman clearly did try to seduce him. And Joseph fled. He didn't try to find out more information or stay there. that's not what David does David instead proceeds onward like an ox to the slaughter there's also something in the parable that we're going to read later on that again directs the uh, the attention away from Bathsheba doing any wrong and it's only on David so what was David thinking what was David thinking through all of this again we don't have a lot of evidence in the text we can't say for sure that we can see a progression to David's actions. First, it's just idleness. Then, hold on one second, there's an accidental look. Then there's a lustful gaze. Then a sought identity. Then a secret meeting. And then the bedchamber. Perhaps all along, David told himself that he would not go past a certain point. I just want to find out who she is. That's all. I just want to meet her. That's all. I just want to spend some time with her. That's all. But this is what sin always does. Though its appetite is monstrous, it never tells you its full designs in the beginning. It merely says, just a little more. Yes, Joe? contemplating hmm i hmm. I'll just repeat your comment that is that um you're you're wondering um whether David stayed behind because he was in a way looking for this kind of opportunity that he was a uh, perhaps thinking that maybe maybe some sort of fling like this would be enjoyable. Certainly, uh, if he wasn't thinking about that outright, the, the situation that he was in where he's not really doing anything, and when you're in that situation, you're probably just trying to find things that are fun to do, a sinful temptation is going to um, jump on that opportunity. It's like, oh, I've got something fun for you to do. Your flesh will, will go after that. So perhaps David... Even though we can't say for sure, perhaps he was saying to himself all along, Oh, I'm not going to go that far, but the flesh, it's deceptive. Sin is deceptive. David puts Bathsheba and himself in a very dangerous situation because God saw fit that their rendezvous would result in the conception of a child. What do we do now, David? Bathsheba asks David. Well, David comes up with a plan. Let's see how it unfolds. We're now going to read the rest of the chapter. Verses 6 to 26. Follow along with me. Then David said to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house, with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. And sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw for him, from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men in the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people along, among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Shef? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him in the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us, and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger, and overthrow it, and so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Oh, Actually, there's one more verse. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, this is a much longer section. We won't be able to observe everything here, but let's notice the main things. What is David's first plan to provide cover-up? right. Get Uriah to come back and sleep with his wife. If he comes home, it would be normal that a man might eat, drink, and sleep with his wife. That way, everyone will think that. What will they think? That the child is Uriah's. He's basically planning to cuckold Uriah. But this plan of deception does not work. Why not? It's not that he didn't want to leave his men because he's been forced to um, leave his men in the field, but it has something to do with that. Yes, yeah, Sue? Well, he, he says it's not right that he should be enjoying himself at home while everybody else is enduring hardship in the field. There might be a little message to David through that as well but he says, it's not right for me to go home in this situation. And I think, as you were suggesting, Sue, this, a, this points to Uriah's character. He goes far beyond, beyond the standard of a good soldier. He's an extremely noble one. So David comes up with a second plan. What's his second plan to cover things up? Before he gets Uriah killed, he has... That's right, he tries to get Uriah drunk So that way, Uriah will let go of his convictions and hopefully go home and sleep with his wife. Now, is it sinful to make somebody drunk on purpose? Absolutely. That is a very unkind thing to do. That makes that person quite vulnerable, and they might do some things that they'll later regret. But this plan doesn't work either. Even when inebriated, Uriah stands by his conviction not to go home to his wife, but he instead sleeps in the same area as David's other servants. This is a noble guy. Even when he's drunk, he doesn't break his conviction. Now David, probably desperate by now, comes up with a third plan, and it's the one you mentioned, Esteban. He's going to get Uriah killed by manipulating the battle situation so that the Ammonites kill Uriah. By the way, what position does Uriah hold in David's army? We don't learn it here, but we learn it in another section of Scripture. Not in general. I don't know what the exact term would be. Um, once we talk about it maybe it involves some command not general he is one of david's mighty men one of those sections of scripture talks about there are various champions of david he has a group called the 30 it was actually 37 men and uriah is one of them he's one of david's champions he's a great warrior he may have some command as a, as a, someone i think just mentioned he was an important part of david's army but david says it's actually more important that he be killed And David tells Joab to not only purposefully put Uriah where the fighting is fiercest, that would greatly increase the probability of Uriah dying, but then to even withdraw from Uriah suddenly so that Uriah might be alone and overwhelmed. That's going to even further increase the chance that Uriah will die. Notice, who brings the message to Joab detailing how Uriah is to be killed? Uriah does. Isn't that really chilling? but it also points to Uriah's character. He didn't look at the message. The plan succeeds. Uriah is killed. Israel's army comes too close to the enemy walls. And not only does Uriah die, but some of David's other soldiers die too. There's collateral damage just to get Uriah killed. But David's okay with that. Upon hearing the news of Uriah's death, David encourages Joab with the words, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Those words about a sword will prove haunting to David. Bathsheba, after hearing of her husband's death, mourns for him. But as soon as is proper, David makes Bathsheba his wife. She joins the royal harem and gives birth to a son. But we're told at the end of the the passage that the thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Ask a few interpretive questions now again. After all of this, should David believe that he has executed a successful cover-up? This is a at first it might be like, well, yeah, I mean, he he got what he wanted. He got Uriah killed off, and Bathsheba is married, so everything is gonna work out. But as I think Steve, you mentioned, there are actually some Practical or there are practical considerations that should have made David aware that he hasn't kept things that well under wraps. First of all, the circumstances in David and Bathsheba's marriage look awfully suspicious. Moreover, it probably wouldn't be too hard for an observer to count backward from the birth of Bathsheba's child to realize that the child was conceived before David and Bathsheba were married. Furthermore, it's likely that one or more of the people involved in David's plots would make the matter known. Just think of how many people David has involved in his schemes up to this point. Many of the palace servants were instruments of or witnesses to David's sin. Joab is a straight-up accomplice to murder. Even some of the soldiers under Joab are aware that something abnormal has happened or even designed to get Uriah killed lots of people know that something is up. And we know people talk. Rumors about David are sure to spread from these sources. But most importantly, David should not believe he successfully executed a cover-up because God knows. God sees. It was evil in his sight. And God is sure to not let people get away with their sin. This is clear from Scripture. Moses warned Israel in Numbers thirty-two twenty-three. He was speaking specifically to the two and a half tribes who were settling beyond the Jordan. And they had made a vow to fight for the rest of the tribes. He says, but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. That's just what sin does. And Jesus says, in Luke twelve, two to three, when he warns his disciples against hypocrisy, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Sin, even secret sin, will eventually be revealed. Now certainly all sin will be exposed at the judgment, at the final judgment of God. God will call men to account for every word, thought, and deed that they have committed. But sin is also frequently exposed in this life. Sin has a tendency to come out. Secrets have a tendency to become revealed. No person perfectly covers his tracks or can perfectly keep others quiet. One preacher said it succinctly, sin will out. Sin will out. You might get away with, with it for a while, as David does, but your secret sin will eventually come out. Be sure your sin will find you out. How foolish, then, was David's attempt to cover his sin? What a tragic waste! Uriah is needlessly slaughtered to cover up a sin that was going to be revealed anyways. But this is the senselessness of sin. Sin is horrible. It causes you to do the things that are so foolish and hurtful to yourself and others. How might have David, though, rationalized to justify his actions? To either make them not seem so bad or not bad at all? Yes, Shane. I think that's absolutely right when we talk about the deceitfulness of sin it's not merely deceiving others it is most primarily deceiving the person who commits it and certainly that's where these rationalizations come in where you feel like your sin is not that bad or maybe not bad at all how specifically might David try to justify his actions well he married Bathsheba and maybe that that's one way he thought to smooth over his adultery well at least I married her so you know that that makes everything fine You know, that's a good point. That This is definitely one way that the flesh and sin comes at us. As we do a lot of good work for the Lord, or in this case, David for his nation, and it's like, well, why shouldn't I receive something that I want? Or this is such a small thing compared to all the good things I've done. Surely it's not that bad. How else might David have tried to justify himself? He may have said, well, I didn't really commit murder. Why? That's right. It was the Ammonites who killed him. I I didn't do it. I mean, he perished due to the hazards of his profession. I mean, he was where the fighting was fiercest, but he could have survived. If he was uh, adept enough as a soldier, people die in war. It wasn't really my fault. He may have also rationalized due to his desire to protect Bathsheba. I don't want her to get in trouble. I don't want her to die. After all, it really was my fault. I have to do whatever I need to do in order to make sure that she's not executed for adultery. Perhaps he thought that it was better for the people that he do this. It would be more hurtful to people if they knew the truth about my sin. It would actually be less hurtful to them if I just did more sin to cover it up. This is really for the good of the people or maybe the good for the kingdom as a whole. If I don't do this and people find out, then people might question my authority to judge evil. They might even rebel and attempt to overthrow me. For the sake of the peace of the kingdom, I must do these further sins. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah I tried to do the less um the less hurtful things, but that didn't work, so God, I've got no other choice. yeah, but with these justifications, like oh, it's for the good of the people, for the good of Bathsheba, for the good of the kingdom or or whatever he was saying, What's the sad irony to all of them? It's precisely these cover-up measures that brought about all the things he feared we're going to see that God's judgment would result in people rebelling against his authority. That he would actually have to flee from Jerusalem. That he would hurt Bathsheba, that he would bring dishonor to himself, that he would discourage the nation, that he would embolden people to sin, specifically because he tried to cover up his sin, instead of merely confessing it. David probably did rationalize his sin. That's the deceitfulness of sin, as you mentioned, Shay. But his sin and the cover-up greatly hurt his people. No matter how he said, oh, this is for the good of the people, it was actually a great hurt to the people. That's a good point, Steve. Um, his maybe he couldn't convince everybody that he was innocent, but for those who weren't super acquainted with the situation, they know Uriah came back and Bathsheba became pregnant. Maybe they figured that, oh yeah, Uriah is the is the father, even though they weren't quite aware. And then marrying the widow, oh wow, what a nice thing to do! Uh, polygamy aside, but you know he's he's taking care of the the widow. Yeah, so I think you're right. David was painting himself as even the the good guy, even more righteous in this situation, which is horrible because he was actually more evil than people could imagine. He was acting in a more evil way. It's really shocking. It's really shocking the extent of sin that David does. But it began with small sins. It escalated into further sins, and he just became more and more deceived in his own mind. And while this is all shocking, there's another part to this account, which is also shocking, and that's God's response. Let's look at the first part of that in chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 to 12. Starting in verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who would come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you, indeed you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. We'll stop there for a second. Let's observe. At this point, David and Bathsheba's child is born. So this is at least nine months after David's initial sin. And he has not repented or confessed his sin the entire time. Nathan tells David a story. What's David's reaction to the story? He's extremely angry. How could this rich man take the poor man's ewe lamb and slaughter it? He had so many himself. What judgment does David pronounce on the rich man? He deserves to die. But David, you can't be put to death according to the law just for stealing. He actually says he should repay fourfold. But the man deserves to die. Why specifically? What was so heinous about his crime? He had no compassion. That's what was the aggravating circumstance. But David does not realize that this story is actually a parable who really is the rich man who lacked compassion it's David who is the poor man who loved his ewe lamb Uriah what are the rich man's flocks and herds David's great possessions and his wives and concubines and who's the ewe lamb Bathsheba. you stole her you took her and it's the slaughter, I think, refers to Uriah's death. God, through Nathan, explains all this to David. You are the rich man who stole away the beloved eulam of Uriah, even though you were already so amply supplied. God reminds David of how much God has done for him, how much God has given him. I made you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, houses and wives. I gave you all Israel and Judah. If that were too little to rightly satisfy you, I would have given you more. God then rebukes David, David's evil, asking how David could act with such ingratitude. God dismisses absolutely that David had not committed murder. He says, you struck down Uriah. You used the sword of Ammon, but it was you who did it. And then God pronounces judgment. The sword will not depart from your house your family will now be full of conflict and bloodshed. And while you violated another's wife in secret, I will cause your companion, one from your own household, to violate your wives in the sight of all Israel. Some serious words. Two quick interpretive questions. How does, David's, or how does Nathan's confrontation of David via parable reveal David's hypocrisy? I mean, David does give a righteous pronouncement, right? But why is that a revelation of his hypocrisy? He's willing to pass judgment on the evils of others, but he will not deal with his own evil. This is the definition of hypocrisy. He's passionate. He's incensed at the evil of others, the lack of compassion on others. And yet he will not turn the gaze on himself, not confess or deal with his own sin a slightly different question. And these words from Nathan, is God condoning polygamy? I mean, this parable, and then gave you your master's wives. Is God saying he approves of polygamy? The answer is no. What's happening here is that God merely acknowledges the multiplicity of David's wives as further evidence that David's actions are completely unjustified. He just stating how things are rather than approving of it. Now, something we should note about the phrase master's house and master's wives, it's strange because David did actually, actually did not receive any of the wives of Saul, though David did marry the daughter of Saul, Michael. In fact, Saul appears to have had only one wife. At least there's only one wife mentioned in the scriptures. While the kings of Israel's neighbors often inherited the harems of the previous king, in this case, the phrase master's house and master's wives appears to simply mean everything that belonged to the previous king. It's not specifically saying, you got some wives from Saul. God is simply saying, I gave you everything that Saul had, all his blessings. We've said before, God tolerated polygamy in the Old Testament, but it was never his design. And nearly every time it's mentioned in the Bible, we see that polygamy leads to trouble. And it's actually going to, even for David. David. So all of this has transpired like a great tragedy. David commits a heinous sin, and then commits an even worse sin, trying to cover up the first. Now David's sin is exposed, and judgment has been pronounced. How could this situation possibly be salvaged? Well, here comes the shocking part. Let's look at verses 13 to 15. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. It's just a few short verses, but what happens here is momentous. Let's observe. When his sin is exposed, what does David do? confesses it. He confesses that he has sinned greatly. And against whom does David say he sinned? The Lord. Obviously he sinned against other people too, but even here he recognizes it was chiefly the Lord that I sinned against. What does God do in response? He pardons David's sin. God takes away David's sin, and he tells David that David shall not die. This is shocking, because as we've seen, the penalty of adultery is death. Also, the penalty of murder is death. And David did other sins besides these. And he's the leader of Israel. He's to be held to an even higher standard. If anyone deserves to die, it's David. But God says, you shall not die. I've taken away your sin." That's incredible. Nevertheless, God does also say to David that that David's and Bathsheba's child shall die. And what's the reason God gives? This will happen because... Say that again. Well, we'll talk more about that. It's a natural consequence of this sin, but God specifically says, you have given the enemies of God occasion of blaspheme. Okay, let's explore these a little bit more now as we interpret. Is confession of sin all that is necessary for receiving the Lord's forgiveness? No. It's an important part. Confession of sin, saying the same thing with God about your sin is an important part of repentance. But here... It is emblematic of David's whole repentance. We don't see it all mentioned here, but this confession is a sign of David's whole repentance. Why does God pardon David's sin? Why does God do that? that's, That's not what we expect. Or it might not be what we expect. God is merciful. That's what it comes down to, right? I mean... We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Let me repeat your comment. David wrote the book of Psalms. The Psalms have a high number of messianic prophecies. This is going to be looking forward to the reason that God is able to pardon. But why God pardons, not just his ability to pardon, but why he chooses to, one answer is that it's the response of God to repentance. David is going to say later in the psalm actually about this episode that God does not refuse a broken and contrite heart. So God fully forgives when man fully repents, when man truly repents. But the greater answer is that this is simply the sovereign mercy of God. This is the great mercy of God. God, out of love for David, chooses not to give David what David deserves. David did not exercise compassion toward Uriah, Bathsheba, the nation, or many of the others involved. But God exercised exercised compassion on David. And this is part of why God is so great. His loving kindness is far greater than we can imagine. He says, I will be merciful to you, David, simply because I have set my love on you. Now, how can God do this? How can a just God pardon sin? Doesn't that make him unjust? Well, it's as Bill mentioned. God made a provision so that he can pardon sinners, and that is, he was going to provide payment from someone else a perfect sacrifice David didn't know what that covering would be specifically he trusted that God would provide covering and that God could provide pardon but we know in the fullness of time God sends his son Jesus that he might pay for the sins of God's people God is able to pardon because of Christ's sacrifice therefore God is free to be merciful However, if God forgives David for David's sin, why does God still punish David? Didn't he say, I, I've taken away your sin? Yeah, or Steve just mentioned, you reap what you sow. Sin has natural consequences. There's another element here too. David, as the leader of Israel, set a horrible example for his people. And God has seen fit that when Israel's leaders sin, often he gives a special punishment to that leader so that the rest of the nation might fear. The rest of the nation might not be taken off track. You remember Moses. He commits one sin. He does not give God glory when he um, is to bring forth water from a rock. But God says, because you did not honor me before the people, you will not go into the promised land. Oh God, did you not forgive Moses when he was repentant? No, I'm sure he did. But he said, you set a terrible example for the people. You're the leader, so I have to make an example of you. God partially does that to David. Some of these judgments are merely because David's the leader. He set a very bad example, so God needs to make an example of David. But the other part of the answer is that sin has natural consequences. You do reap what you sow. These consequences come to pass regardless of one's repentance and forgiveness. Because sin does immediate damage. The damage is intrinsic to the sin. This, again, is part of why sin is so horrible. It's like sin is a delicious but but poisonous drink that God has commanded us not to drink. If we continue to drink it in rebellion against God, oh, I don't care what you say, God, I'm going to do what I want. Well, not only will the drink itself poison us, but God will punish us for transgressing his command. But if we start to drink of sin and later repent, though God's justice does not need to come down on us because through our repentance and faith in Christ, God's justice is satisfied in Christ, nevertheless, we still suffer the effects of sin's poison. We've already taken it in. It's already done its damage to our bodies. That is, it's done its damage to our lives and to the relationships that we have. Obeying God causes us to heal many of the effects of sin, but some of the painful or poisonous effects of sin may not be fully healed for a long time, or maybe not even during our lives, not until God creates a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, really, Adam and Eve is the perfect example of that, right? I'm sure they were repentant, but their effects, the effects of their sin lasted far beyond them. So, God is able, shockingly, to pardon David's sin, to totally take it away, and to pronounce For David, you will not die. But nevertheless, sin has its consequences. We've seen David's shocking descent into sin. We've seen God's shocking, merciful response to David's repentance. But now, let's look at the aftermath. What were the results of David's and God's actions? I'll share this by way of summary. First, the promised judgments and consequences of sin do come to pass on David and his house. David and Bathsheba's child does die. David's family becomes racked by conflict. Perhaps in imitation of his father's unbridled lust, David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar's brother, Absalom, then, later murders Amnon and is banished. Later, after Absalom is allowed to return to Israel, Absalom raises a rebellion against his father, and he nearly destroys David's kingdom. Absalom takes Jerusalem, he captures ten of David's concubines, and then to strengthen the hands of his supporters, Absalom then pitches a tent on the palace roof and goes into David's concubines in the sight of all Israel. God's words of judgment came to pass. Second, though, rather than simply ignore, cover up, or try to forget his sin with Bathsheba, David, as part of his repentance, actually memorializes God's grace to him via a psalm. We don't have time to read it this morning, but Psalm 51 has this as its introductory description for the choir director a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1 sums up the whole psalm. Be gracious to me, O God, According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. This is very surprising, even courageous. I mean, we might ask, who makes a song commemorating the worst sin he ever committed? But David has returned to his previous righteous attitude. He is saying, essentially, I don't really matter. God matters. And look at how kind he has been to me. When I sinned against him terribly, he did not cast me off. He heard my cry of repentance, and he cleansed me anew, and he can do the same for you. I want all Israel to remember this. I want them all to know what kind of God they serve. And then there's a third result. A third happening in the aftermath. And that God chooses to display his kindness again to David, to Bathsheba, and to their descendants. Though God allowed Absalom to rebel against David and to send David running for his life, God also delivered David from Absalom. Absalom is killed, the rebellion is put down, David's kingdom is reestablished. But furthermore, though God caused David and Bathsheba's first son to die, God gives the two of them another son. You can actually see it right in Second Samuel 12. Look down to verses 24 to 25. After the child, the first child dies, verse 24 says, "Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, excuse me, and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedediah, which means "beloved of the Lord for the Lord's sake." Isn't this also astounding? Though the pair suffered greatly because of their sin, God's kindness comes upon them again. He gives them another son, a son on whom God is pleased to set his love, the man of peace, Solomon. God is faithful to his promise. He would not remove his loving kindness from David's house. He redeems the sinful marriage of David and Bathsheba. He gives them joy in him again. And not only that, Their son becomes the next king. He builds God's house. And through him comes the greater seed of David, the greater fulfillment of the promises to David, Jesus Christ. As we've seen before, so many people in the lineage of Christ are not the kind of people we would expect to be the forebears of God's holy son. Rahab, Canaanite, former prostitute. Ruth, former idolater. And Moabite, and now David and Bathsheba, adulterers, pardoned and cleansed by God. This is not again a picture of the beautiful gospel foolishness of God. God will use the weak to shame the strong, the things that are not to shame the things that are, so that no man may boast except in the Lord alone. He is our righteousness. He is our wisdom. He is our strength. He is our Redeemer. He bought us back. So as we close today, there are a lot of things that we can take by way of application from these passages. I'll just mention a few things. First, please ask yourself, do you take the danger and horror of sin seriously? Sin takes control and wreaks havoc. No man or woman, no matter how righteous, is immune to its attacks without taking yourself out of the world, do you nonetheless stay as far away from sin as possible? Stay away from its toxin. Another question. Do you harbor a secret sin in your life? Do you still suppose that you can hide it from God and others? That you're smart enough, observant enough, sincere sounding enough? Do you not believe God when he says, be sure your sin will find you out? love the Lord because of his redemptive kindness to you? Do you glory in your Savior? Do you worship the Lord because of his shocking kindness to you, revealing himself in his way of salvation to you, delivering you from sin's power and its eternal penalty, and calling you into, into eternal fellowship with himself? Do you love the Lord, your Redeemer? That's all we have time for today. Next week, we look at the Psalms a little bit. We're going to overview the Psalms. Here's our memory verse again. 2 Samuel 7, We see this in another light. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. If you have other questions or comments, come see me afterwards. Let's pray. Father, this is a great word. The sin is horrible that David committed, and yet you showed yourself glorious in your response to it. You were merciful. You pardoned his sin. You restored to him the joy of salvation, even though he had to bear the consequences of his sin. Nevertheless, you gave him joy in you again. Your loving kindness did not depart from him. And we thank you for that, God, because that means that you'll do the same for us. Your character doesn't change. Lord, we glorify you this morning.